You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. It is December 15th, 2020, and we are going to talk a little bit today about the general idea of Edmund Burke's quote, all that is required for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. What was meant by that? And is that true? And what does it mean? What are the implications of that quote from Edmund Burke? Now, if you've been listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet show here lately, I've been talking a lot about Edmund Burke and Thomas Paine and the origins of the political divide here in modern politics. We can thank Edmund Burke for the conservative political tradition. He is the guy that basically wrote the founding ideas and articulated them and made a good argument for conservatism as we know it. Now, obviously, many people have contributed since Edmund Burke's day, but Edmund Burke was kind of the guy that got the ball rolling. Thomas Paine, meanwhile, is the guy that cheered on the French Revolution, gave moral backing, moral cover for the actions of the revolutionaries in France. Edmund Burke, meanwhile, was very, very critical of that. And both men weighed in on the American Revolution, surprisingly supporting it, but for very different reasons. Edmund Burke saw the American Revolution as an affirmation of the principles of Magna Carta, which were transcendent, which were above Magna Carta. It wasn't just so much that Magna Carta itself was the standard. It was that there was a higher and transcendent standard that he believed the American Revolution was in the spirit of and was um, derived from and inspired by. Thomas Paine, meanwhile, saw in the American Revolution a fulfillment of his idea that every successive generation has the right to self-determination, has the right to throw off the yoke of all previous generations' experience and understanding of the world. But Edmund Burke and Thomas Paine get uh, very good, thorough treatment in Yuval Levin's book, The Great Debate. I would recommend, if you haven't read that, if you haven't heard of that, check it out. There is an audible version. Obviously, you could get paperback as well if you prefer paperback. I'm sure there's a Kindle version as well. In addition, if you prefer having the Kindle version, but I listened to it on audiobook here in recent months, and uh, I thought it was very educational. It was very informative. In fact, I was just recently talking with my friend and pastor, Paul Pavlik, here in Greeley, Colorado, and we were discussing the nature of American politics, the nature of our governmental system. And he was racking his brain trying to figure out what are we and who has ultimate authority. He was getting ready for a sermon, which he delivered this past Sunday. It was very good, by the way, Paul, if you're listening, I did thank you. And I told you in person, but I'll tell you again for posterity here that it was a good sermon. It was well said. Uh, You were bringing the scriptures to bear. And uh, I appreciate that. and, And God bless you for it. But in the course of talking with Paul, ahead of the sermon. We had a really great conversation, talked about an hour and uh, then some about what is the nature of our political system vis-a-vis 1 Peter chapter 
2, the tail end of 1 Peter 2, talks a lot about authority and submitting to human authorities and human institutions, honoring the emperor, honoring and obeying the governors who are sent by the emperor, and very much echoing and paralleling what the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome in Romans 13, where he talks also about the governing authority being a minister of God, not bearing the sword for nothing, and how the government's role, its responsibility is to punish those who do evil, to reward those who do good. Now, that is not to say in either the case of Paul's writings or Peter's writings that government always does what it's supposed to do. And we know that instinctively. That's not news to us. And it certainly isn't news to God. It wasn't news to Peter and Paul. They knew full well, and they knew by experience at their very end, that government does not always reward those who do good. It does not always punish those who do evil. Sometimes governments become corrupt because they're manned and inhabited by corrupt men, men with a sinful nature who do not acknowledge the truth about God. They don't revere God. They don't fear God. So they sometimes will reward those who do evil and they'll punish those who do good. We see that in the case of the trial of Jesus Christ, especially because Jesus Christ is the only absolutely positively, completely innocent man ever in history. That was part of the purpose of the incarnation was for Jesus to come without a sinful nature to live a perfect life faithfully, obeying and loving God the Father with everything, every aspect of his being and loving his neighbor as he loved himself and to teach us what that looked like, to help us to understand that. That's part of the reason in addition to the fact that he was here to make an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He paid the debt that we could not pay. He died in our place so that we could be made right with God if we believe in Christ. But the idea that Jesus is the man who is executed, even though Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, recognizes that he's an innocent man, I find no fault in him, is the word that Pontius gives to those who are shouting crucify him. But in the end of the day, Pontius Pilate asks, what is truth? You know, basically in a, a skeptical, uh, indifferent, apathetic sort of a way, very cynical response to the fact that the Son of God and, and this completely perfect, innocent man is standing before you. I find no fault in him, but what is truth, right? What is truth? Who do you want me to release back to you? And the crowd that has been shooting... The crowd that has been shouting, crucify him about Jesus, says they want Barabbas. Barabbas is a murderer, and Pontius Pilate releases Barabbas back to the crowd, to the mob. That's what happens when you have governing authorities that are not administering justice. They're not fulfilling their role vis-a-vis Romans 13 and being that governing authority that is a minister of God, punishing evil, rewarding good. You get innocent men convicted of things that they are not guilty of because it's expedient, because it is politically useful to condemn them. You get guilty people who have done violence, who have murdered even. You have them released back to the public if that's what the mob demands, if that is what is expedient politically. If that is what we have as a government right now, then we're no worse off than for century Christians. We're no worse off than the audience and the recipients of Paul and Peter's letters of encouragement. Those letters are in the New Testament in part to encourage the original recipients, but in no small part, I think the larger picture is 
those are there to encourage and admonish us. We need to take those letters seriously and see them as authoritative and see them as relevant to our situation. But it is difficult. It is challenging. My friend Paul Pavlik recently found this out as he was trying to preach on the subject. It is difficult sometimes to find a one-to-one ratio of honoring the emperor and honoring some person or institution here in the United States of America who is our emperor. We don't have an emperor. In fact, we have no emperor on purpose because the founding fathers were familiar with world history. They were familiar with what happens when you have emperors. Sometimes you get a good emperor. Sometimes you get a very bad emperor and they're capricious and cruel and there's no stopping them except for having a coup. And those are bloody and destructive and damaging. And that's not what you want. And so ideally what you have is a system of checks and balances in which you have decent men who provide accountability for corrupt men who are going to take whatever power you give them, however small, and they're going to try and run with it. They're going to try and grab more power. They're not going to be content with the amount of power that is entrusted to them. They're going to want more power. They're going to try and use their governing authority to enrich or uh, ingratiate themselves to a better circumstance. They're going to use it in a corrupt way. So therein gives us our introduction to Edmund Burke's quote, all that is required for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that good men would do nothing? Well, it's basically the idea that good men see an injustice happening and they respond like Pontius Pilate did. They say, what is truth? They shrug their shoulders. They say, I'm going to wash my hands of this. This is not my circus. These are not my monkeys. And they let it go. They don't intervene. They don't step in. They don't do something. They don't act because they think they have plausible deniability and they can blame someone else. Well, you know, in the World War II example of Nazi soldiers or German soldiers, not all Germans were Nazis, but you had the Nazi party, which was ruling. And so very often we think of World War II Uh, Germany, and we think all of them were Nazis, if they were fighting on behalf of the government, if they were working in any capacity within the government, then they were Nazis. And that is not the way that it is any more than we have maybe a Democrat president for eight years in Barack Obama. And not all of us were Democrats. In fact, a great many of us were very much opposed to and critical of the president of the United States, Barack Obama, Barack Hussein Obama was a radical who wanted to fundamentally transform this country. And you had a lot of patriots who were not okay with that because the way that he wanted to fundamentally transform America was corrupt. It was bad. It was evil. It was no good. It was predicated on a rebellious spirit against the things that God has instituted and away from the tradition that honored God historically in this country, not perfectly, but intentionally, strategically, consistently trying to shoot for this bullseye and recognizing that God's standard is the bullseye, morally speaking, ethically speaking, and when it comes to comparing and contrasting truth claims. So for Edmund Burke to say, all that is required for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing, I think of our American political system in which you have 
checks and balances. You have corruption always, but you also hopefully have a righteous zeal for justice and for truth winning out. And even when it comes to evil taking the reins of power and corruptly maneuvering itself into a position of authority, good men are still supposed to speak truth to power. They're still supposed to come before kings and governors and emperors and provide a testimony to God's goodness. And part of God's goodness is not just this is God's character and that's that, but you know, it's just like what we read in the New Testament. You know, you say you believe that God exists. Even the demons believe and shudder. What good is that kind of faith that you believe God exists? The fact that God exists is supposed to have a practical implication in the way that we live. How then shall we live, not as unwise, but as wise? And so that works itself out for any organized body of people that believe not only that God exists, but that that is meaningful and it should mean something to the way we treat each other, the way that we organize, the way we interact, the way that we live. The way that it works itself out is that we don't go certain places. You know, the reason the United States of America was a better intercessor in World War II to deal with Nazi Germany can be highlighted and illustrated no better than the contrast between East Germany and West Germany. The Soviet Union was godless and corrupt, and I think arguably as corrupt or more than Nazi Germany. They weren't an existential threat at that point in time the way that Nazi Germany was. Nazi Germany was incredibly uh, strong and aggressive, and they were threatening to conquer the world and murder millions and millions more people than they already had. But Soviet alliance was useful to bringing an end to the existential threat of the moment, and that was Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. So we ended up joining hands with the Soviet Union, but after Nazi Germany was defeated, the division of the world basically between the Soviet Union and the United States of America contrasted sharply what happens when a governmental system acknowledges God not at all, but elevates human reason on the one hand with the Soviet Union, and what happens on the other hand when there is a reverence for God and there are certain rights that we uphold, human rights that we defend and we articulate because we love our neighbor, because we fear God, because we expect to give an account to God for the way that we treat our fellow man. That contrast was put on sharp, stark display in the example of East Germany and West Germany. East Germany was under the hold of the Soviet Union, and the people had a very hard time of it. And the Soviet Union constructed a wall, the Berlin Wall, to keep East Germans, East Berliners, from getting into the free part of the country that was governed by the United States of America. Now, I personally think it was a bad idea to divide the world between the Soviet Union and the United States of America. I think that George S. Patton had it right. I think that's why he died under very suspicious circumstances. If you want to know more about that, read Bill O'Reilly's book, Killing Patton. It's very, very good. But George S. Patton said we should keep on going. The real threat as the war with Germany was drawing to a close was very clearly the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was a dangerous, 
unethical, unscrupulous, godless force in the world for decades. And it ended up being a very costly conflict that we deferred, we delayed, we kicked that can down the road at the end of World War II with Germany. And it found its expression in a lot of smaller theaters, which it would not have. I don't think it would have found its expression in those smaller theaters if we had dealt with the Soviet Union and told them this is what it's going to be. Now we're going to dictate terms to you. And if you don't like it, then maybe we just have to throw down here and now. That would have been, I think, better. But a lot of people disagreed. They didn't want to fight. They wanted to just move on. Let's consolidate. Let's rest and recoup from this long, hard fight that we've had with Germany and with Japan. Let's recover from that. We still had the war with Japan to win, and that was proving to be a challenge, although the atomic bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were still forthcoming. And those ultimately did help to bring a <clears throat> expedited conclusion to that war. And actually, you know, again, small side note, we should talk more about this at some other uh, juncture, but the dropping of those bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki was not just maximum destruction. We think of it very often in terms of the cost, but we should think also in terms of what were the alternatives? What was the thing that should have been done instead and how dangerous and how destructive, how deadly, how costly in human lives would that have been? That isn't to say that it was necessarily the right decision to kill men, women, and children in Hiroshima and Nagasaki or in the other places that were firebombed to as bad or worse effect, arguably, before the dropping of the atomic bombs. But we have in the case of Soviet aggression after World War II, throughout the Cold War, and America's embrace of this motto in God we trust in part to contrast with the godlessness of the Soviet Union as a way of shorthand explaining this is what differentiates us from them we trust in God and they say there is no God the state the Soviet Union our reason is supreme that idea led to massive human suffering and injustice. It gave the Soviet Union a government which was corrupt, which did not reward those who do good and punish those who do evil. It rewarded those who did evil and it punished those who did good. And so what are we to make of Edmund Burke's line? All that is required for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. I referenced this quote this past Sunday. I was talking with some men at church about the current political situation and how we were expecting the electoral college to vote and how are they going to do that? What are the legal challenges ongoing still? What is their status? And what is their likely outcome? What's happening? What's going to happen next? And what are we anticipating? Just kind of comparing notes. But we were talking about it and I threw this line out. All that is required for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. And I said, I am still optimistic. I am optimistic though by no means assured that we will have a positive outcome to all of this for this country that we live in, this country that we call home. The United States of America is our home. And I don't think that we are better positioned to see a positive outcome if we are fatalistic. So I think for the sake of maximizing the odds that we have a positive outcome, we have to have a positive outlook. 
We should by no means be hubristic. We should by no means be foolish or naive, but we should be optimistic that something can change because without that mindset, without a willingness and a desire and a belief that something can change for the better, we cannot have a positive change. We will not get there with that attitude of fatalism. So I threw out this quote from Edmund Burke and the response I got from a friend of mine who is a good man, he's an honorable man, uh, but I will not name him in case it would uh, embarrass him for me to, to name him. The response I got is, are there any good men? And he could have meant a couple of things. It occurred to me after we were done talking about this. And I wish I would have thought to ask the question at the time, but it, it didn't occur to me. Maybe I have that conversation later and we get a chance to talk about it a little bit uh, more and expand on what he meant by that. But what's possible is that he means by that this Calvinistic uh, doctrine of TULIP or this acronym TULIP, which basically summarizes the Christian teaching on the nature of man, the nature of God, the nature of salvation and election and predestination. It summarizes all of that with this acronym. And the T in TULIP stands for total depravity. Total depravity means that we are not just bad. We're not just a little corrupt. We are dead in our corruption. We have no ability to choose anything other than corruption because it's not in our nature to choose anything else. God has to put that ability in us. That's part of what election means is he is not only giving us the gospel, he's giving us the capacity to receive the gospel, to be attracted to the gospel. That's what it means when he calls us to himself is that he is putting within us just enough goodness that we choose, just enough faith that we choose to believe in him. Now, I personally, as I've said before, am not a Calvinist. That doesn't mean I'm anti-Calvinist. If the scriptures say what they say, then I believe that even if I don't understand fully all of what that means from a technical standpoint. But my main contention with Calvinists is that I basically think not only do I not fully understand this, but I'm not convinced that you understand this either. That's a very tidy, neat, you know, tie a bow on it way of summarizing everything, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's true for being convenient. It may be a convenient way to summarize the whole thing. That doesn't mean that it's true. It might be convenient because it's easy and we can say, ah, we put that question to bed. That's all there is to it. Thanks for playing, folks. Let's move on to other things. But that doesn't necessarily mean that at the end of the day, at the end of our lives, when we stand before God, that that will in fact be the way that he explains it, supposing he explains anything to us like that. But if that's what my friend means by asking, are there any good men, then I really question what we're to make of a interaction between Abraham and God in Genesis. And I want to read this extended passage for you because it is what comes to mind with regards to our present situation, with regards to the Edmund Burke quote, and with regards to understanding the nature of history, the nature of uh, political 
organization and government and political traditions, political philosophy, in light of our Christian faith? How then shall we live, not as unwise, but as wise? How do we honor God? How do we fulfill Micah 6, 8, to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God? But I want to read for you from Genesis, this little selection here, and we'll talk about it a little bit in the time that we've got left. So Genesis chapter 18, starting in verse 22, says, So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before Yahweh. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous are as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And Yahweh said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And Yahweh went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Here we have this interesting back and forth between God and Abraham, in which they're discussing the destruction of a city which God has announced he intends to carry out. He intends to, if you will, go all Hiroshima and Nagasaki on Sodom and Gomorrah. So what is up with that? Well, the fact is that that city had become completely corrupt and awful and evil and wicked, and the wickedness of the city was so great that God just could not let it go any longer. God is holy, and that means that he is not compatible with man sinning and rebelling. If he were to just forever and ever indulge that and allow it to continue on without any kind of a termination point, then that would be a compromise of his character, which he is just not going to do. God is holy, and we should be glad that he is holy. God is righteous. He is the righteous judge, and he is faithful and true. Now, he's long-suffering. He is faithful and true, but he is long-suffering. And so he will, at a certain point, say, that is enough. Enough is enough. And when his wrath is kindled, we do well to look out and to get out of the way. That is what the fear of the Lord means, is that we are not trying his patience. We are not testing him. We are not just doing and saying things that we know are going to aggravate him because we expect that he's going to delay his judgment forever. A man reaps what he sows. God is not mocked. But looking at this passage, we see Abraham, who has a special relationship with God. He has a covenant relationship with God that gives us the whole rest of the story that follows. God intercedes, intervenes, offers him a deal, makes promises to Abraham, tells him what he's going to do for Abraham and Abraham's descendants. But here we have 
God telling Abraham that he's going to destroy the city of Sodom. And Abraham knows that his nephew lives in Sodom with his family. Now, in another place, we see the kings, including the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, going to war with their allies against some enemy kings. And there's a battle. And in the course of this battle, Lot and his family and his household and his servants and his livestock and everything are taken captive by the enemy kings of the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham, when he finds this out, he gets his men all armed and suited up for battle. And he has uh, a victory over these enemy kings, which is pretty astounding because he doesn't have a large troop, but it's almost like special forces operators is the, the picture that I imagine. I don't know how big the enemy force was, but however big it was, they put it to flight and uh, they ended up conquering and winning back and rescuing. It's like a special forces uh, rescue operation. They rescue Lot and his family and his household and his servants and, and all of his wealth. And they even deliver back the spoils of the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah that they had lost. As they lost the battle, they lost the spoils to their enemies. And so I think in a similar sense, you have Abraham feeling protective over his nephew and his nephew's family and his nephew's household. And he knows that his nephew has chosen to live in Sodom. And I think Abraham feels responsible because he's the one that gave the choice to Lot when they decided they needed to part ways. Their, their goods and their servants and their families, they were just not compatible and they were getting into conflict over kind of limited resources where they were camped out at. That conflict wasn't good. And so they said, you know, let's separate. You can choose, is what Abraham said. You can choose where you want to settle, and I will go to the other place. Whichever you choose, I will settle the other place. And Lot chooses to live in Sodom. And so when he lives there for a time, bad things happen. And it really does have a corrosive effect on his family and on his household. And by the time these angels rescue Lot and his family out of there, his wife is corrupted and she looks back and turns into a pillar of salt. His daughters, they end up sleeping with their father after getting him drunk. They say, let's get him drunk so that we can get pregnant by him so that we can not die out. We want to have a family. So we're going to get our father drunk and have sex with him and get pregnant. So they do this and it's just an absolute mess. It's a disaster. But it's astounding to me, you know, Lot's situation and the, the the fact that he's a righteous soul, according to what we read later, his righteous soul is vexed daily, is interesting in light of the situation. He has a righteous soul that's vexed daily. Why is he living in Sodom? Why isn't he doing something about it? Well, you know what? At a certain point, people are so corrupt, they will not listen. They won't listen to reason. They won't listen to appeals. They won't pay attention to your example. Or if they do pay attention to your godly example, they're going to hate it. They're going to be shouting something like crucify him the way that the mob that was angry with Jesus shouted crucify him. And so we have this back and forth between God and Abraham. And Abraham feels protective of Lot. And he knows that he has an opportunity here if he intercedes on Lot's behalf with God. And so he recognizes also that he is trying God's patience and that God is one to be feared. Well, that's why 
Abraham has this special relationship with God is because he fears God. That's why God blesses him is because he fears God and he trusts God, but also because it's God's good pleasure to choose Abraham. It's complicated. But this idea that all that is required for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing, I think it works itself out for one in our understanding that there must be in some form or fashion righteous men. Otherwise, God's response to Abraham here would have been very different. He wouldn't have said, I will not destroy the city if 50 righteous men, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10 righteous men are found in the city. He would have just said, there are no righteous men. If God had said there are no righteous men, then why would we see in Proverbs, for instance, this constant compare and contrast between the wicked and the righteous? Why would we see that? The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Well, if there are no such things as righteous men, then isn't that a lot like me having an interview on this podcast with my daughter talking about unicorns? I talked with my wife uh, here a while back and I said I should start having the kids on the program. And last night I thought, you know what the hey, I've been kind of putting this off and thinking it was going to be complicated. Why don't I just do this interview with Evelyn, talk with her about unicorns. She wants to talk about unicorns. Let's talk about unicorns. And I was very serious and I she got a kick out of it. She thought it was silly and, and fun. And it was. You should go listen to that if you haven't heard it. But unicorns are not real. And she knows that, I'm sure. But we had a fun time talking about unicorns as if they are real and as if she's a doctor in unicornology. And if unicorns are not real, though, and if they're not something that you would expect to find, then we don't find any you know, reason to talk about them seriously except to be silly. And God is not being silly here when he's having this conversation back and forth with Abraham. I don't think. I don't think he's being silly and he's talking with him very seriously like I talked with my daughter about unicorns. Oh, yes, Abraham. Yeah, no, yeah, 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 yeah. If there's 10 unicorns in the city, I won't destroy it for the sake of 10 unicorns. Right, yep, yep. Okay, there's no unicorn, so I'm going to destroy the city. That's not what it is. We see elsewhere in the text, Old Testament and New Testament, we see it in the case of Noah, who was righteous. He was blameless in his generation, not because he was perfect, not because he never did or said anything wrong, but because he feared God. And so that's what Edmund Burke is talking about here when he says good men need to do something in order for evil not to triumph. He's talking about men that fear God. And so we should remember that. We should keep that in mind. We should be thinking about that in light of our present situation. If we do not fear God, we will not do or say anything about it. We won't be calling people to repentance. We won't be telling them the good news that despite their sinful nature, they can be made right with God. But we can't tell people the gospel. We can't preach the gospel without calling to repentance. It just so happens that when we're calling for repentance, we will be incurring the wrath of corrupt men who don't want their evil deeds, their dark deeds to be exposed to the light. They don't want to turn away from their sin. They may hate us for it. They may rebuke us for it. They may say like the men of Sodom did when Lot tried to intervene on behalf of the angels who had come there to get him and his family out of the city before God destroyed it. They might revile us and say, we're going to do worse to you than we would have to this person, this innocent person you're trying to intervene on behalf of. 
so be it. You know, that is what it is. Be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. But I think we should remember this principle and we should think about whether this is true. Be Bereans about it. Search the scriptures diligently. I believe strongly. If you do that, you'll find that the scriptures support the sentiment that Edmund Burke is communicating here. But with that, that's all I've got for you today. Hope that's useful to you. Hope that's helpful and encouraging. If you have any comments or questions on it, let me know. But otherwise, we'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you heard today, visit the homepage for On The Rocks blog at onthe.rocks. Also, check out On The Rocks blog podcast with Micah Hirschberger, weekly on Anchor FM. If you haven't yet done so, hit subscribe to this podcast also. And you can reach Garrett Ashley Mullet with any comments, questions, or complaints at garrettmullet at gmail.com.